0: to talk for time about the fruits of meditation practice and the practice of spiritual life maybe you could call it an extended advertisement (laughs) Um, I might think of it better as an extended reminder to the heart of the blessings that come to us as we engage in enter into a spiritual path in offering the central teachings of mindfulness of what i like to translate as a wise or sacred presence the buddha says my friends there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, and travel the path of wisdom and compassion, and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindfulness, of awareness, of the body in the body, of the feelings in the feelings, of the mind in the mind, and of the world, of the dharmas of the world in the dharma. So this is his kind of advertisement. There's this wonderful way of purification and liberation and overcoming of grief and sorrow and the development of wisdom and compassion. And because the Buddha was a list maker, you know, you, I'm sure you know some list makers in your life. He he made a lot of lists. He loved making lists. Um, there are all these lists, the Eightfold Path and the Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination and the Four Noble Truths and the three characteristics and I could go on and on and on so I was just reflecting on what is the fruit of practice to speak of um, recently at a retreat and I just made another list (laughs) kind of in that same tradition making a list of what comes to us as we learn to quiet the mind establish awareness quiet the mind and open the heart and um This is a particularly trying time. Now, I probably could say that almost any year. But this year, there is a cultural, if not global, feeling of fear and um, of suspicion that's grown one another and other kinds of people and the visible heartbreak and stupidity of war. Um, and also all the lies and misinformation that go between people and between groups and between countries. And, um, and when we see it's incredibly painful. And it's a little bit like the Buddha sitting under the tree of enlightenment and the armies of Mara, of all the difficulties, assail him before he can find a place of perfect liberation and peace. There's some way in which... Um, This is true in the world that we live, and especially at this time, it's very visible and painful because um, our own country and society is so much involved in that kind of conflict. It's not that it hasn't been here anyway all along, but it's really visible and painful. And here we are in this world, the midst of this mystery of unspeakable beauty and unfathomable sorrow woven together Pablo Neruda asks us when did the honeysuckle know its perfume and when did the pine tree realize its fragrant effect and when did smoke learn to fly and why is the scorpion poisonous and the elephant benign and on what does the tortoise meditate and where does the shade withdraw? And what song does the rain repeat? And where do the birds go to die? What we know is so little, and what we presume is so much, he says. What a great poet. What we know is so little, and what we presume about this mystery is so much. So it's said after his enlightenment, as the story is told, the Buddha would sit in meditation, now his heart free and clear and wise, and survey this beautiful and mysterious world with the eye of compassion and wisdom. And as he did, as the story is told, tears would roll down his cheeks because he would see human beings, especially beings wanting to be happy, yet doing the very things that created suffering. Wanting somehow protection and safety and happiness and doing the things out of greed, out of fear, out of confusion, out of hatred that made things worse. And so the first response of the Buddha and perhaps the first response for us, the necessary response as we simply sit and feel our breath and our body and come back to the reality of our experience is compassion itself. And the compassion is for all of us because we're in it together. As Bishop Tutu said, in Africa when you ask someone, how are you, you get the reply in the plural even when you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well or we are not well. He himself may be quite well, but his grandmother is not well, and so he is not well either. The solitary, isolated human being is really a fiction. And so as we get quiet, we start to feel that, the connection with the children playing outside, who you hear, and with the rest of the world that comes to us in the news, the beauty of the world, you know, the hawk that sits on the telephone wires outside Spirit Rock, and the moon that's almost full tonight, and the fox I saw in the parking lot a week or two ago, and the little bunnies that live around here, and I'm sure they're having some dialogue, the fox and the bunnies, (laughs) you know. And the hummingbirds that live in our neighborhood. I mean, who could have designed and imagined a hummingbird? And we look around, and then in the midst of this, we see the sorrows politically, economically, the racism, the, the st- stupidity of war in our communities, in our nations, and even individually in our humanity. Divorce, loss, betrayal, uh, cancer. The Sufis say, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world, you hold the pain of the world in in your heart, a certain measure of the cosmic pain, and are called upon to meet it in joy and compassion instead of self-pity. And so like the Buddha, when we sit, perhaps the first movement of the heart as we quiet Ah, is to feel some tenderness and compassion for our struggles and then realize that it's not just us, it's everybody, it's her and him and them. And do you know anyone that doesn't suffer and struggle in some way? And then you look further. And yet, the amazing thing is, what the Buddha discovered, is that compassion is natural to us when we get quiet when we really listen. A terrible letter to read to you, which I've read on another Monday. My mother always assured me that unspeakable punishments were bound to befall any child as naughty as I was. If I were you, she'd say I'd be afraid to go to sleep for fear God would strike me dead. This is kind of the nightmare, mother. She'd speak these words regretfully as though saddened by her daughter's fate. I thought myself so unlovable. In addition to threatening me with eternal damnation, mother also gave me a fear of strangers, germs, disease, food poisoning, a precocious child. I added fears of my own, learned from medical dictionaries, spontaneous human combustion. <laughs> when I was suspended from my girls' school at age 15 for a harmless prank, the headmistress referred to my behavior as damnable. This was no big news to my mother or me. What was news is that I had the highest IQ and the lowest grades in the student body. I took pride in the fact that although I was a dysfunctional underachiever, at least I wasn't stupid. (laughs) The most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I'd just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. (laughs) She answered, how could anyone ever love you? It took me 50 years to heal the damage from her ugly words. Recently, discussing eating disorders with my doctor, poking fun at myself, I noticed the tear running down her cheek, and I became aware of my own. This is what I told her. From age five or six until into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and, steal into the kitchen for a piece of bread or cheese, which I would carry back to bed with me, and there I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed, I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep, you're safe now, everything will be all right. I love you. And it's so painful to read. And I know that there are those of you in this room who know this kind of pain or half of it or some part of it from your own life. Or you see it on television or in the news or somewhere, you know it. And yet it's also amazing because in the middle of that, there is this wisdom of the heart that feeds ourself that loves ourselves, each one of us. As the Buddha saw, I saw beings everywhere wanting to be happy and says, they're there, go to sleep, you're safe now, everything will be all right, I love you. There is native to our hearts when we let ourselves listen, when we don't close ourselves to the world and its sorrows, an amazing and mysterious and very genuine compassion. And this is one of the fruits of a spiritual life, is to feel it and touch it and remember that stream. And as we do, oddly enough, instead of the kind of spiritual transcendence, what we might call the spiritual bypass, the spiritual end run, what grows is a kind of embodiment. The Buddha said it's in this fathom-long body that we can learn suffering, its causes, the joy of liberation and the path of freedom for all beings, just here. And so there's a kind of embodiment that grows along with our compassion and meditation. Remember Thomas Merton who said, of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? And so as we sit and listen Quiet down, we feel the tensions in our body that we've carried and hold them with some compassion, begins to soften. Maybe we walk in meditation if you do that. I mean, I knew a friend, a person who I respect a lot, who was pretty psychotic at one point in her life, and she walked herself back into her body. It took her a year of just walking and feeling her feet until she re connected with her, her soul and her body and her spirit. A lot of times when I'm teaching on retreats with people, the question I'll ask is, how does that feel in your body? If all this is going on, what is it like the life of the body? Or Joan Tollison, who's his Zen teacher, who wrote about teaching Zen, from the beginning she started to practice as a Buddhist practitioner. And in Zen you have that beautiful oval mudra of your hands that your navel that you hold to signify the completeness of the world. But she was born missing the lower part of one arm. She said, and nobody said anything about it in the Zendo. So she's sitting with one hand here and one arm there, not quite knowing what to do and just trying to do it. And meditating for some years and trying to get it right. She said, and then one day on a retreat... She went into the bathroom, she said, and I was 27 years old before I really looked at my arm. It took me that long to look in the mirror and actually see my own body. And there's something so mysterious about living in a body, and so sacred and beautiful, that as we practice it's not going somewhere else, but it's really bringing this attention to our life. And if we take our body to be sacred, how can we not see that in another? As Martin Luther King says, If a person sweeps streets for a living, they should sweep like Michelangelo painted, like Beethoven composed music, like Nureyev danced. That what we do with this fathom-long body is the place of either confusion and, and bondage or the place of liberation, of the heart, of compassion. So compassion grows, and the stream of wisdom of the body, the body is a mirror for our life. If you want to know how your life's going and how you're living and so forth, ask your body. It will tell you. It will speak wisdom to you. And you see Thich Nhat Hanh walk. Those of you who have had the privilege of studying with him. And you know, two, three, five thousand people are there waiting for Thich Han, And he walks in. And just the way he takes a mindful step and everyone goes, Oh yeah, that's right. You can really be here like that. And people come back into their bodies. To sit is that same thing. Here we are. And oddly enough, when we get here, when we come into our bodies more present, there comes a sense of space. Not the space of being spaced out or someplace else where you're disconnected. Remember the line from James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. (laughs) Not that kind of space where you're not here. But a spaciousness, the Buddha said that if you take a cup of, excuse me, a spoon of salt and put it in a cup, the water tastes very salty. If you put it in a lake, the lake still is pure. And in the same way, there grows, as we become present here, a capacity of heart to feel the pains and tension and sufferings of the body and life and the beauty and the joys and the longing and the love of life the heart somehow gets bigger as we get present more we make space for what is so this breath this body these feelings this community this earth we become in a way able to rest in the witnessing of it all as ajahn mahabua One of the forest meditation teachers from Thailand talks about when the mind becomes aware of its own power to witness all things and be unmoved by them, then the mind and the heart come together and the fear of death leaves us because mind and heart know Understanding knows that even when death comes, while the pain may disappear, the awakened heart is timeless. It is luminous, containing all things, aware of all that is present, and yet unaffected in some fundamental way. (laughs) Now this might sound distant to you, so if you want to know really simply how to experience this, Go and look in your mirror and look at your body and what you'll see is your body is older than it was. You know that? I mean, however old you are, it's older than it was. But the weird thing is that your mind doesn't feel older, does it? Because the mind is not in time, the body may age, you rent it, you get the body for a time, you have to take care of it, the mind doesn't age, consciousness itself is the space within which experience arises and passes. And something in us knows this and can return to this. Even in the worst day you're lost and then there's this moment of awareness, wow, I was so lost in that. And here we are, just back in the present. So there grows a spaciousness. There grows a kind of wisdom as well. The eyes of wisdom grow in us. This is the way things are, sometimes painful, Sometimes neutral, sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful, sometimes pleasant, sometimes neutral, sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful, sometimes neutral, sometimes painful. Anybody have some other experience of that? (laughs) It's just what it does. It's woven together, pleasure and pain, like day and night, and sweet and sour, birth and death, joy and sorrow, are woven into the fabric of our human existence. And wisdom sees things the way they are. This is it. Oh, I want a life with no pain. I'm going to try and fix it and make sure there's no pain. Good luck. Anybody succeed? <laughs> or no change. I don't, I want things to stay the way they are. Ha. Huh. <laughs> if you understand, it says in Zen, things are just as they are. If you do not understand, things are also just as they are. <laughs> yeah? And wisdom sees life, sees the way that it is, and then realizes that to cling to it, to, to try to hold on and with greed and fear and so forth, it basically doesn't work. You get what one friend of mine says, that the whole Buddhist teachings is really talking about, you get rope burn. You know, you're holding on to something that's changing instead of realizing that each moment and each day is new. And there comes the perspective of wisdom. As Hermes Trismegistus, the alchemist, says, Perceive as if you can see that you are not yet begotten, not yet conceived, that you are in the womb, that you are young, that you are old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Grasp in your mind and heart all of these at once in a moment all of time and place. And then you can see with the eyes of the divine. The mind has this ability to be wise and the heart to see, wow, look at this amazing life. This is the way that it is. And this is the cause of suffering and this is the cause of happiness and freedom. And wisdom in us grows as we listen and look. And with that also grows trust. Refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Dharma, refuge in the Sangha are the outer ritual, the outer symbol in Buddhist teachings of following the way of the Buddha. And what is refuge? I mean, it's not that the Buddha is someplace, you know in some, his ashes are in some stupa in India. When the Buddha spoke about taking refuge, it is the refuge in the Buddha that is always present. To see the Buddha nature in every being you meet, to remember the Buddha nature, the nature of freedom that is possible in your own heart. And with this grows a very deep trust A trust in the Dharma and the Buddha and the way things are. Hatred never ceases by hatred, one of the great Dharma teachings. When we see with the eyes of wisdom, when we look into our hearts, we know it's true. Violence never begets anything but more violence. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient eternal law. And we look in ourselves, there are all the difficulties we have, our fears and anger and doubt and confusion and so forth. And as we practice, as we sit and meditate and bring the sense of kind attention and mindfulness, there grows somehow a trust that we can be with all of the experiences of life and see and sense from our Buddha nature, like we are sitting under the tree of enlightenment and Mara is doing this dance of temptation and difficulties and so forth, say, yeah, sure, I know all of that. And here we are, just in the heart, at peace, trusting. It's beautiful to learn to trust. One person who came to me in the East Coast, a man who had done a lot of years of Vipassana and then was training with a Tibetan Lama to do the 100,000 prostrations that are the beginning of Vajrayana uh, tantric practice, visualizations and stuff. He came because he was having trouble. He had done a couple of few thousand of the bows and he couldn't do it anymore. He was just completely stuck. He said, I'd stand there and I just can't do it. I start to get afraid and shake and I just can't do it. And he said, I, I went to my Lama and told him that it was really, really hard for me to do. And my Lama said, try harder. Which was, you know, kind of nice advice, but not really to the point. But he told me the story and I said, oh, great, I'm interested. Something's cooking. I mean, when you can't do something, instead of saying, well, try harder, you can also become interested. What makes it so that this is so difficult? So I said, great, come and visit me, you know, and we'll bow together. So he came and we stood next to each other and talked about his practice and so forth for a time. And we started to do these bows. And the bows are refuge bows. You do a 100,000 bows where you visualize the tree of enlightenment and see the Buddha and great teachers of different generations and, and the whole community of sangha and teachers over thousands of years, and you bow and you take refuge as you do it. That's kind of the simple version of it. So he's trying to take refuge, and he couldn't. So he starts to bow, and then he gets kind of frozen, and he's feeling all this fear and difficulty and pain and overwhelm in his body. And I say, okay, you know, just stay with that. Breathe a little bit. Where is it in your body? How does it feel? Can you be with that with some attention and compassion? Oh, it's centered right here and here. And as he's feeling it, I say, well, as you feel it, just let yourself be aware of whatever else wants to come. And all of a sudden, some tears began to run down his cheeks. And he looked different. He looked younger. You know how this happens. I said, what happened? And he said, oh, I was when I was little. I said, how little? He said, oh, six years old, five years old. He said, I had a really difficult mother and... I had a lovely relationship with my father. He protected me. He was my guy. And um, when I was five or six years old, my father had a major stroke. And I remember the ambulance coming up and him going off to the hospital. And then him coming back. And he wasn't the same person anymore. He was in a wheelchair and he never really recovered. And he, in a certain way, abandoned me. Because he couldn't protect me anymore And I was left to my mother And the difficulties there And then a few years later he died And I could feel his tears and his sorrow And I said well what does that have to do with this bowing Just feel in your body Closed his eyes, felt all that He said that little boy Said I am never going to trust anything again When my father is taken away like that I am simply not going to trust And I looked at him, we stood together for a little while, and I said, well, is that little boy who you really are? He kind of had to reflect for a minute. He said, well, it's felt like that for a pretty long time. (laughs) I said, but let's talk to the wisdom heart. Is this who you really are? He shook his head, he said, no. I said, what does the deepest wisdom in you know? He said that that little boy was so frightened and afraid he was never gonna trust again but actually that I need to learn to trust, that nothing else will make me free, happy. It's like Rilke writes, poet Rilke, Being alive means not numbering or counting, but ripening like a tree which doesn't force its sap and stands confidently in the storms of winter, not afraid that summer may not come. It does come. It always comes. Touching that place of trust in ourself that knows that something beautiful will come again if we let ourselves face even into what is difficult. Where else will you learn compassion but through your sorrows? Where else will we learn freedom? But through turning to our fear rather than projecting it on the you know who, the you know, those people who are different in some way. And there grows as we sit this cap- sense of trust in the capacity of the heart to see and know and live through our difficulties and become wiser because of it. There grows as well a joy. And when the Buddha speaks of meditation, he doesn't just speak of suffering. He invites people as you get quieter and feel your breath and body and let go of some of the tension and the mind chatter quiets down a little bit to start to feel wherever there's happiness and joy in your being. And then he goes on, if you can, suffuse your body, drench the cells of your body with the feeling of happiness. Let well-being fill you in your meditation. He says, just as a sponge when dipped into the river Ganges will soak up the water of the river and every part of the sponge will be permeated by the moisture of the river. Let your being and body become permeated by happiness, by joy, by rapture. And so you begin as well the sense with compassion and presence and spaciousness and trust that happiness can come that you can do this you can do your human life with all its struggles and its beauty from a place of dignity and courage you can and love and so many of us have learned to be loyal to our suffering you know what i mean <laughs> Like, we don't want to abandon it. I'm a real, you know, wounded, suffering person. And then at some point, you know, you look at somebody like the Dalai Lama who's probably suffered as much as anybody I've ever met. I mean, imagine the burden of your country that you haven't been able to lead your people back into. And every day you hear of atrocities, personally people escaping and telling you that, that you have to carry as a burden. Um, and yet he's happy. Said, if I can't be happy, what good is this life? Or Gosananda, my teacher, the Gandhi of Cambodia, who was so joyful, even in Cambodia, said, We have to learn this one of the most radical acts. Deborah tells the story of a woman in one of her groups, Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, who was a single mom, African American woman, who told The stories of a traumatic childhood, of the intensity of poverty, (laughs) incredible (laughs) struggles, uh, racism, just all the kind of difficulties that you could imagine growing up in one of the poorest parts of the city. And somehow raising her kids and going through all this and having periods of being you know, sick and then getting well and periods of outrage cause it all. And finally her children were raised a bit and she had put herself through school and was starting to work. And she was in this group of women, Deborah, and she said, I've been a radical all my life to survive a survivor. And I've decided this year, I think she just turned whatever age, 45 or something, that I'm going to do the most radical thing of all. I'm going to let myself be happy. How is that? As a radical act. (laughs) When our second son Jasper was born, he was labeled a child with Down syndrome. This is as inaccurate as it could be. In Jasper's case, it should be called Up syndrome. When he first wakes up, he rushes into his parents' bedroom and leaps on us with an enthusiastic happy-to-you morning. He meets the entire world with his heart outstretched and he hugs everyone he can. It's his favorite way of being. They used to call his state retarded. It does make us wonder. Other parents of similar children have warned us to curb his hugging behavior or he'll be the target of molesters. But this is Jasper's gift. How can we deny it? The other day we were walking down the street and he got out in front of us. He's almost 12, but he's very small. This angry-looking tough guy with tattoos and piercings comes toward us and I go, "Uh uh-oh, but it's too late to reach Jasper. And then I see Jasper look up, smile, and throw a big hug around this guy's legs and shout, hi there. (laughs) And the tough guy paused and tousled Jasper's hair And I could see this shy young boy's smile come over the face with all the piercings. And I knew Jasper had done his magic again. (laughs) Trust grows in the heart. Joy grows. And in it we discover a kind of balance. The Buddha says, just as the mountaintop is unshaken by the winds, we too can let the heart become unshakable. That's one image. Or just as the bamboo will sway in the breeze but not be uprooted, we can allow for a flexibility of being. This too. There comes in us in some simple way a trust of being where we are, this timeless moment, the present now and now and now and now. This is all we have is now. And learning that, ah. Oh, we can be now in this place, and that that's where we always are, that's no other place to be. And with this comes an ease, an equanimity, a balance. Oh, it's just this moment with its joys and sorrows. This is how it is. It's so beautiful. And a steadiness that comes as well. As the Buddha says, there are those whose hearts can remain unmoved by the fires of anger and conflict, by the fears and confusions of the world, unshaken as a pillar, steady as a rock, quiet as a still forest pool. Steadiness. And it's really the kind of long-term steadiness that is almost timeless. I mean, one of my favorite images is of a. T. A. Ratana, who's this saintly man who is the great um, Gandhi figure for the country of Sri Lanka, started the Sarvodia movement to bring economic, social, spiritual justice all together in the villages of his country. And there's been a civil war in Sri Lanka for the last 17 years, a peace brokered last year by the Norwegians. And after the truce and the peace was brokered, Ari called the followers of Sarvodia together and had a rally for 600,000 people in a country that only has 17 million people. So, I mean, it's a huge rally of people who came as his followers. And at that rally, he'd been teaching about peace in the villages for years, he presented a 500-year peace plan the country of Sri Lanka I mean think of this for a moment you know he said it took us 500 years to get into this conflict due to the um, racial conflicts between different groups economic conflicts due to the legacy of centuries of colonialism and economic exploitation and the misunderstandings between Buddhists and Hindus and Tamils and various people in this he said, it's going to take us 500 years to work our way out. And here's a plan for one year of ceasefire, and the second year, peace in these villages, and the fifth year, this kind of economic development, and the tenth year, this education among people, and the twentieth, and the twenty-fifth, and the fiftieth year, where we learn and where we start to share in these ways, economically and politically, and redo our society. And uh, 75 years, and in a hundred years, we'll have a council to see how we're doing and then 200 years, and 300 years. Can you imagine that from our politicians? (laughs) I mean, it's the next election, honey, and that's about it. (laughs) This This is the eyes of an elder, to have somebody who looks in this way, that steadiness. And then it almost doesn't matter what you do. You just plant the seeds. You put one foot in front of the other. You feel the... 437,000th breath in meditation, and then it's 438,000. You stay with what you know, one thing after another that really speaks to and from your heart. And sometimes the results are visible, and sometimes all you can do is plant the seeds and pray. (laughs) I worked with a doctor named David who 15 years ago was a resident at San Francisco General during the height of the AIDS epidemic. Many of his patients were young men like himself, and what he was unprepared for was that many of them died. His thorough training in modern medicine had given him ways to treat so many diseases, and his calling as a physician was to do everything he could to heal them. But David became overwhelmed, uh, um, but he was at a loss to, uh, to um, because of the fact that nothing he knew was of help. He became overwhelmed as one patient after another died, and the sense of futility grew in him, and he felt that way f- for the whole second half of his residency. David also happens to be trained as a Tibetan Buddhist, and it's been his practice to offer prayers for each of his patients. When a patient dies, even now, he lights a candle on his altar at home and keeps it burning for 49 days. The whole time he was a general, he prayed for each dying young man, lit a candle on his altar for them. And now, years afterward, he tells me of this with a smile, for it's made him wonder. Perhaps the reason he was there was not what he had thought. He'd expected to serve by curing and rescuing his patients. When their problems proved resistant to his medical expertise, he had felt useless, futile. But maybe he was not meant to be there to cure people. Perhaps he was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps he had served every one of his patients flawlessly. There comes somehow a steadiness of heart that knows that no matter what happens we still have to plant the seeds that we most deeply believe in in this world of compassion, of respect, of patience, of justice, of forgiveness. I mean what else are we going to do with our life that's really of any benefit? And out of this deep steadiness, 10,000 breaths, one foot in front of another, one moment of struggle and saying, ah, compassion here too. There grows a sense of freedom, what the Buddha called the sure heart's release, not merit, good deeds, insight, understanding, concentration, bliss, rapture. None of these, said the Buddha, is the purpose of the teachings of the Dharma, the teachings of liberation. But the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is why Buddhas appear and speak these words to all of us. There is a freedom that we each know is possible. We've seen it in our lives and in others. And if your meditation is not leaving you more free, I don't think you've been meditating. And it doesn't mean that you have a good sitting. Lord knows you might sit and your body will hurt more and your mind wanders more. But what I mean about this freedom is that there are all these changing conditions, your ideas and the pain and the contraction and the joy and all this stuff comes and goes and you're there and you realize, yes, I can bow to all of these things. And little by little, there's a shift of identity from the body of fear, from the small sense of self, to know that we contain it all. Love says, I am everything says one teacher and wisdom says that i am nothing and between these two my life flows or carl jung who put it this way he said at times i feel as if i am spread out over the landscape in inside things and am myself living in every tree in the flashing of the waves in the clouds and the animals that come and go in the procession of humans and the procession of seasons. And there grows in us as we practice both an openness and emptiness and with it a connectedness of heart to all things. O nobly born, remember who you really are. Do not forget your true nature, your Buddha nature. Sit and remember. Walk and remember. Do your practices of loving kindness and compassion, forgiveness and remember. So simple. I got this letter. It's in kind of lovely middle school handwriting, you know, with misspellings and everything. Dear Jack, I came to your meditation center with my school in eighth grade, when I went, I didn't take any of that meditating stuff seriously. <laughs> just talked to my friends. Then I started to get in big fights with my parents and myself. I recalled the time we spent meditating and how good it felt cause I was so alone in my own little world. So I took the little knowledge I had about meditating one night after a long fight with my mom and went try, went out on the roof and tried to do what you told us. And when I opened my eyes and went back into the house, I was not as mad. And it helped me talk to my mom. I don't know what it is about meditating that helps me, but I do know it helps with my anger. So I thank you a lot for this gift, and I wish we had more of it in our school. (laughs) Freedom. It's really so simple. And we know it. We know when we get caught and contracted and afraid lost in the body of fear. And some other part of us knows that that's not who we really are. That there is another truth that is bigger, that is timeless, that is our human birthright, our blessing. And to sit in meditation, to come together even for an evening in community, to walk in these beautiful green hills that are turning slowly brown, to breathe to watch the news and weep, to act politically, which we also need to do for justice and for the care of people instead of out of hatred, fear. All of this is the Buddha nature manifesting, shining forth in your life. And we do a spiritual practice to support that, to invite it. So let's sit for a moment. (coughs) And whatever experience, (coughs) whatever experience is present, Let your heart and mind be bigger than that experience to hold this too with compassion and spaciousness, as if to bow to it and say, Yes, this too, and here we are, seated in this mysterious body on this great earth, like a Buddha, witness to it all, and free in the midst. Um, let us end with a little chant and then we'll go out. In India when you meet someone commonly the greetings <laughs> to put your hands together and say namaste. Namaste means I honor the divine within you. I see that secret beauty behind you know your costume of the body and personality and all that stuff that's not who you really are and um, what a beautiful way to greet somebody Uh, the root of that word namaste is in Sanskrit also the word namo which means to bow to or honor so let's chant the word namo that starts many many Buddhist texts with that word nine times and as we do you can let yourself chant and bow to yourself, the ones you love, those who you wish would awaken, to the, those who carry the sorrow in the world right now, even more than we do, perhaps. Whatever asks of your bow, and then we'll go all into the evening. na mo na Bow to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, to their beauty, to our brothers and sisters in all the other continents of the world, and to our brothers and sisters around us, and to the brothers and sisters in the forms of the trees and the animals, the stones, and all May your week ahead be filled with wisdom, compassion, and blessings. Thank you.